Alrighty. Ish, this is about normal. Okay. So Luke 23, 46 through 49 says, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. So we're now coming uh, to that final moment of Jesus' earthly life. Uh, He's on the cross. He cries out with these final words, commending his spirit into into the Father's hand. And according to Luke, this is the last words that uh, Jesus uh, said upon the cross of course we know in the other gospels he also said it is finished it is finished so um, so these are, this, this is the final moment of uh, Jesus' life and what I want to talk about is or show you are the three witnesses to the crucifixion uh, we have the scriptures we have the centurion and we have the people and what we're going to talk about today is the scriptures that's about as far as we're going to get you know in view of the world's um, view of Jesus' death if you listen to the secular uh, viewpoint of it all uh, they consider Jesus' death a tragedy don't they uh, they consider Jesus' death a tragedy they, they call it a, a great injustice uh, perpetrated on a, on a good man that spoke against the system against the injustice of the system and so he was uh, put to death because of that and uh, in, the, in the opinion of many Jesus was nothing, nothing more uh, than, than a martyr of a great cause. And his uh, death was, a, was a, an act of injustice. It was, it was a tragedy. And they always say this. They always say that his life was taken from him. Okay? That his life was taken from him or they cut his life off at an early age or or they took his life or they killed him in fact one uh, major denomination uh, still portrays Christ on the cross and uh, they still focus on the emaciated body uh, limp and lifeless hanging on the, hanging on the cross you know so they're always portraying that uh, before their people now was Jesus' death a tragedy as the Lord portrays it no, it wasn't, was it? No, Jesus' death was not a tragedy as the Lord portrays it. In fact, even Jesus himself didn't consider his, his death a tragedy. Uh, if you remember when we looked at it back in Luke twenty-two fifteen, when they gathered for the uh, what we call the Lord's Supper or for the Passover, uh, Jesus said, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now that word desire means that's something he was looking forward to, something that he was longing after, right? So that he didn't look at this as a tragedy. Hebrews 12 uh, verse 2 says, looking on the Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So... You know, he, that's kind of wild to think about this, but Jesus looked with joy uh, toward not so much the suffering, because nobody likes suffering, but the, the end result of what he was suffering for. So he, would, he looked forward to it. So, so it wasn't a tragic tragedy. What was tragic? It's, it, what was tragic back in his day? What is tragic even today? This is the real tragedy about the crucifixion of Jesus. And that's that obstinate unbelief and that obtuse ignorance that people have in regards to what Jesus Christ had accomplished for them on the cross. That's the big tragedy. That's really the big tragedy, is that the people reject the counsel of God against themselves. So that's the real tragedy. So, you know, what the world chooses to see is they choose to see a man whose life was taken from him. They choose to see a man uh, who, uh, who was put due to death. That's what they choose to see. And 
The truth of it is, is just the opposite. The truth of it is just the opposite. Uh, they didn't take his life. <laughs> he gave his life. He gave his life. Uh, he gave his life so that you and I could have what? Eternal life. Everlasting life. So the first thing I want to speak about is his death. Uh, more specifically, <coughs> was his death caused or was his life given? All right, Was his death caused or was his life given? So I, I want to look at this a little bit. Look again at Luke 23, 46. He says, when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. All right, now that's not the first time we read about someone giving up the ghost in the Bible. Uh, in Genesis 25.8, we read of Abraham. He gave up the ghost. In Genesis 25.17, Ishmael. Abraham's son through Hagar, he gave up the ghost. Isaac, Genesis 35, 29, he also gave up the ghost. In Lamentations 119, the prophet Jeremiah talks about those in the city of Jerusalem who gave up the ghost. So to give up the ghost is a, is, is a common term that you find in the Bible. And in the, in, in, in the course of, uh, when you're speaking of death, that's of course, that means that the, the ghost or the soul or the spirit is departing from the body. I love what um, uh, Jimmy Boyette quoted, um, I think it was Spurgeon, that said that, uh, what was it he said? We're not bodies with souls, we're souls with bodies. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, thank you. That's a pretty accurate statement. We're not bodies with souls, we're souls with bodies. This body goes away, but the soul is everlasting. It's and the difference between like Abraham and Isaac and, and the fellows that Jeremiah was talking about is that uh, these men... Their physical bodies reached a point where it could no longer uh, hold the soul, right? Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael, they all got so old, right, that the body could no longer hold the soul. The folks in Lamentations, that's when Jerusalem was under siege by the Babylonian army. So a lot of those folks, they died of disease or, or, or uh, famine or, or violence. In other words, their bodies could no longer hold the soul, maintain the soul. Because they were so damaged or whatever. Yet, in the case of Jesus Christ, there's a difference. There's a difference. He... Man didn't take Jesus' life, he gave his life freely. Now you're going to ask me, okay, Jeff, how do you know there's a difference between, let's say, an Abraham and a Jesus, or an Ishmael and a Jesus giving up the ghost? What's the difference? Well, the Bible tells me what the difference is. In John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, this is Jesus talking. He says, therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. Verse 18, he says, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down on myself. He says, I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. There's the difference. Jesus had the power the authority from his father. If you look up this word power, it's translated authority in Matthew 7.29, jurisdiction in Matthew 23.7, and it also implies the liberty for someone to do as they please in 1 Corinthians 8.9. So Jesus had the authority, the jurisdiction, the volition or the will to lay it down and to take it back. He's the only one. He's the only one that can do that. 
Uh, The most that mortal man can do is to take life. That's the most that I can do. That's the most that you can do. Uh, Whether it's by accident or by purpose, homicide or suicide, whether it's in peacetime or wartime, whether by the law or through a criminal act, the best that any of us can do is take another person's life. That's really the most, even, even if you commit suicide, you're still taking a life. I mean, even when the body is, is sacrifice motivated by fanaticism or patriotism or idealism, it's still an act of taking a life. That's all it is. It's, it's taking a life, no, it's, it, no matter how unselfish the motive. The, problem, the, the thing is this, no mortal man has the authority to willingly give up the soul. Try it. Soul, go to heaven. Soul, you, don't, you can't do it because you don't have the authority. You don't have the authority. God didn't give you that authority. Even the preacher in Ecclesiastes recognized this. Ecclesiastes 8.8 says, There is no man that hath power over the spirit to retain the spirit. Now that's interesting. Because what is it that we want to do? When we reach that point to die, what is it that we really want to do? We want to hang on to that, don't we? That body wants to hang on to that soul. Does any of us have that power to do so? No. We don't even have the power to retain the soul when we're facing death. Much less give it up voluntarily. He says, There is no man that hath power over the spirit to retain the spirit, neither hath he power in the day of death. There is no discharge in that war. (laughs) None of us are are going to be excused unless we're raptured. Neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. No man possesses this authority that Jesus had given to him by the Father. It was a volitional act on his part when he gave up the ghost. Now I know that I'm preaching to the choir on this and none of you folks have an issue with that. But there are people out there supposed Christian teachers and preachers out there that do have a problem with that. They do. They claim that the body of Jesus had reached its limit on the cross and so perished. Because they have an issue with this Jesus giving up the ghost voluntarily. They just have an issue with that. They teach that the trauma that Jesus had endured had finally had its outcome. And the best that uh, he had was no different than anybody else. So in that final moment of consciousness, when he was near death, he cries out, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And they teach that that's, that's all that Jesus had. He was no different than anybody else. No different than anybody else. That he cried out in this loud voice, a severely traumatized man, and then died. Now, I disagree with that. And not because it's my opinion, but I disagree with it because that's not what the Bible tells me. Alright? He says he cried with a loud voice. Okay. What I've read about crucifixion from medical doctors and experts that study such things, suffocation is stated by many in the medical field to be the primary cause of death in crucifixion. It's not so much the loss of blood, it's not uh, exposure, even though those factors are uh, involved in it. But what it is, it's because of the way they're suspended on the cross, uh, they can't expel the breath. They can't take in the breath, and so the lungs begin to fill up with body fluids. And what happens is eventually they drown in their own body fluids 
Yes, ma'am, I'm getting right to that because I'm going to use some medical terms. I may not pronounce them right. According to these experts, it's a combination of pulmonary edema, fluid in the lungs complicated by pericardial effusion, or, yeah, pretty impressive, right? Fluid in the space around the heart that leads to pulmonary, a combination of pulmonary and cardiac failure. Remember when the soldier pierced Jesus' side? What came out? Water and blood. The real agony of crucifixion is not so much the nails, but it's the constant struggle for breath. The constant struggle for breath because of the pressure of the diaphragm on the victims. And so the victim in crucifixion is is unable to expel all that in his lungs. And so what happens is that um, it, 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 you're not, it, he's not providing sufficient oxygen to the bloodstream, so fluid sle- uh, seeps from the lungs veins and begins to fill the alveoles, alveoli, which is the little sacs in your lungs. And those little sacs get filled up, get filled up. And if anybody has had a severe case of pneumonia, you know how hard it is to breathe, much less cry out with a loud voice, right? Because you just don't have it in your lungs. You just don't have it in your lungs. And yet Jesus is said to cry out with a loud voice. Now what is this loud voice? Allow me to provide you some examples of what a loud voice is in the Bible. Remember Potiphar's wife when she was putting the moves on Joseph? Genesis 39:14 that she called unto the men of her house and spake unto them saying, "See, he hath brought in a Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me and I cried with a loud voice." The frightened witch of Endor when she realized it was Saul. 1 Samuel 28.12 And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. Right? She was frightened. She was startled. King David lamenting over his son Absalom. 2 Samuel 19.4 But the king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh my son Absalom, oh Absalom, my son, my son. Here's a good one. The Assyrian uh, emissary, when he came to Jerusalem, when Hezekiah was the king, and he called out to the population of Jerusalem, surrender or die. Second Kings 18.28, then Rabashakah stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Now picture this. Tall city walls. He's standing back out of bow shots so somebody can't put an arrow in him. And he's crying with a loud voice. Jesus cried with a loud voice. Now why do I give these examples and why do I make this point about Jesus crying with a loud voice? I say this is because Jesus still had capacity in his lungs to do so. Again, if you have pneumonia, you're not going to do that. But he still had that capacity in his lungs to cry out with a loud voice. He had a body just like you and I. Another thing to take into mind, well, this is something terrible to think about. On record, there are people who survived for 10 days hanging on a cross before they died. 10 days. Now I say that to say this. When Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate to beg for the body of Jesus, Mark records this in Mark 15:44, and Pilate marveled if he were already dead. 
And calling unto him the centurion, he asked whether he had been any while dead. Now, why did Pilate marvel that Jesus was already dead? He'd only been on the cross for six hours. Maybe. May have been. It may have been. Because he was surprised that Jesus was already dead. He's already dead? Yeah, maybe 12 hours. Up to 10 days. But the point is, this pilot is saying, wait a minute, he's already dead? He's already dead? He wasn't used to that. He was probably used to the 12 hours. Or the 10 days. I don't know. I don't know. Never, yeah. Yeah, he never did, it did what people expected him to do. I mean, he was so surprised by it, he asked the very centurion who crucified Jesus, is he already dead? Yeah. Yeah, he's already dead. You know why the Bible puts these little details in here, like with Pilate being marveling? It's because there are those who are telling a different narrative. And God gives you these details to show you you can trust this book. You can trust this book. You just have to read it. You just have to read it. I'm not I'm gonna get out a little soapbox. It's like what we're reading the news today. All they give you is an inflammatory headline. Because they know people don't bother to read the story. Another narrative. So this brings me to three truths about Jesus' death when he gave up the ghost. And we're going to talk about the scriptures. First of all, and I know you guys know this, his death was a substitutionary death substitutionary death Romans 8.3 says for what the law could not do and that it was weak to the flesh God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh so the cliff note version of that verse is simply this that sinful flesh was condemned in the sinless flesh of the son of God Okay? Sin was condemned in the sinless flesh of the Son of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Substitution. Substitution. There's an exchange taking place between the sinner and the sinless one. He took my sin, he took your sin. He was our substitute. He was our substitute. Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Do you know who deserves to be on that cross, really? Me. You. But he took your place. He was your substitute. When Jesus uh, gave up the ghost at that ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. in the afternoon, you know what was going on on in the temple? The evening sacrifice was being offered. A lamb was being offered on the altar. So at the very time that the lamb was being offered on the altar, the lamb of God, according to what John the Baptist tells us, was being offered on the cross of Calvary. Remember the story of Abraham when he offered his son Isaac? What is it that Isaac asked Abraham as they were climbing up the mountain? Where's the sacrifice? Where's, where's the lamb? Abraham told him, well, let me read it. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? 
And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they both went together. What a statement of faith that is on Abraham's part, isn't it? Did God provide a substitute? Yeah, just as Abraham was getting ready to do as God commanded him, the angel of the Lord stopped Abraham and there was a ram caught in a thicket. Jesus is our ram caught in the thicket. He's our substitute. He's our substitute. John's Gospel, it says in John 19.28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst, and then shortly thereafter, it is finished, and gave up the ghost. You see, Jesus would not give up the ghost until all of scripture had been fulfilled. And when he understood that all of scripture had been fulfilled, that he had accomplished all of his father's will, then and only then, he gave up the ghost. Then and only then, he gave up the ghost. Now the scorners and the scoffers, they'll, they'll deny this. And they'll give you these wonderful arguments. But who are you going to believe? You're going to believe them or are you going to believe the Word of God? My money's on the Word of God. His death was an atoning death. Romans 5.10 For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also join God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. You know, in the Old Testament, the primary work of the priesthood was to make an atonement for the people. That's what all the blood sacrifice is about. It was making an atonement for the people. First Chronicles 6.49 But Aaron and his sons offered upon the altar of the, burnt, uh, of the altar of the burnt offering and on the altar of incense and were appointed for all the work of the place most holy and to make an atonement for Israel according to all that Moses, the servant of God, had commanded them. That was their primary function, was to offer this blood atonement, to make reconciliation between a sinning people and a holy God. That's why the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies once a year, is to make this atonement for the people, for the people. Second uh, Chronicles twenty nine twenty four, and the priests killed them, speaking of the off, uh, of the sacrifices, and they made reconciliation with their blood upon the altar to make an atonement for all Israel, all the time, twice a day, evening, uh, morning, and evening, always, always this, this blood. You know, they say Christianity is a bloody religion. Judaism is a bloody religion. It is a bloody religion because of all these sacrifices. Now what is the reason for this perpetual offering of the blood? Well, Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, in verses 1 through 4, he says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very images of things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. Because here's the problem. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. That's why there was this perpetual offering, this continuous atonement, this continuous covering, sprinkling on the mercy seat. Because the animal sacrifices couldn't completely take away sins. They were just, it was just a covering. And what the law could not do, according to Romans 8, the sacrifices couldn't do. 
as far as the sin of mankind is concerned. Christ accomplished on the cross what these animal sacrifices could not. Hebrews 10.12, But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, (laughs) I love that, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So what the animal sacrifices could not do, Jesus accomplished. His blood was an atoning, once for all, blood. A major denomination re-crucifies Christ in every service they hold. Because they teach that's what sanctifies the people, is the church service every Sunday. Others teach that we must atone for our sins through good works. Is that true? No. The sinner who comes to Christ by faith, trusting in his atoning atoning blood, are now forever reconciled on the God. Christ is the atonement once and for all for sins. Once and for all. That's wonderful. Colossians 1.20, having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. So once for all sacrifice. So it's an atoning sacrifice. Now here's where we come into what I was speaking about earlier. Not only was it a substitutionary death, not only it was an atoning death, but it was a voluntary death. Jesus' death was voluntary. And that, that sounds wild, doesn't it? That it was voluntary. Hebrews, again, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5, all the way to verse 10. He says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Now, who do you think that's talking about? Don't be afraid to say it. Jesus. That's what it's it's talking about. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. We already read why. Because it didn't take care of the issue, did it? It just covered it. Then said I, lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said I, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. You remember in in the Lord's Supper, what did Jesus say about the blood? A new testament. We're living in that New Testament period. By the which we we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Once for all. I don't know who is credited with saying this, but it wasn't the nails that fixed Jesus to the cross. It was his love. It was his love. John 10.18, again, I remind you, no man taketh from me, but I lay it down on myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. You see, death didn't come to Jesus. Jesus came to death. Death didn't come to Jesus. Jesus came to death. And it had to be voluntary. He had to be voluntary. Romans 5, 6 says, For when we were yet strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It had to be voluntary. It wasn't forced on Jesus. Those men didn't force it on Jesus. God didn't force it on Jesus. Remember what Jesus told uh, Peter after Peter went through and tried to defend Jesus with the sword? He said, put your sword away. 
Those who live by the sword will perish by the sword. He said, by that, by, by the way, don't you know that I could ask my father to send 12 legions of angels? 12 legions of angels, that's enough to wipe out the entire population of the earth three times. He said, don't you know I have that kind of authority? But he didn't use it. Again, Matthew 26, how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? And thus it must be. It was voluntary. It was voluntary. Turn to Isaiah 53.12. I want you to at least look at this. I don't know if you've seen this before or not. But here we see the testimony of scriptures. Isaiah 53.12. Raise your hand when you get there. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) That's what we used to do in Sunday school for the kids. Isaiah 53.12. Look at this. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Look what it says here. Because he hath what? Poured out his soul unto death. Do you see that? See this bottle of water? I could choose to take the lid off of this. I'd get in trouble for it. And just dump it, couldn't I? That's my choice. If I wanted to do that. That's what he did. He voluntarily poured out his soul unto death. Even the scripture says that. It was a free will offering made by Jesus. And if you read in the Old Testament, what is the one offering that God takes the most pleasure in? A free will offering. One given because one wants to give. It is that free will offering. Psalms uh, 54 6. I will freely sacrifice unto thee. I will praise thy name, O Lord. That's what God wants from us. He wants a free will offering. What does Romans 12 1 and 2 talk about? It's a free will offering that we offer our bodies, a living sacrifice. It's a free will offering. A free will offering is, 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 is most reflective of God's character. God's character is a giving God. Romans 8.32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You see, a free will offering is also reflective of God's character. Was Jesus God in the flesh? Would Jesus do anything contrary to the Father, to the Father's character? Nope. It is his free will offering that shows his love. Right? If you really want to show someone how much you love them, what do you do? You freely give them a gift or a token of your love. You're not asking for anything in return. You're not trying to buy their love. You just do this because you love that person. John fifteen thirteen. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Who said that? Jesus did. John three sixteen. For God so hated the world. No, for God so loved the world that he did what? Gave his only begotten son. John 17, 1. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son, that thy son may also glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over flesh, that he should give eternal life. He should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. God's nature is a giving nature. Jesus' offering on the cross was a free will offering. In, in, in freely giving himself on the cross, he shows his love for the Father. He shows his love for the sinner and he shows his love for the saints who receives the free gift of salvation. How do you become a saint? Is it because of the way you live or because of good... No! 
You're called a saint because you've been sanctified, set apart unto God because of the free will offering of Jesus Christ on the cross. And because you believe in the atoning blood in regards to your sins. That's how you become a saint. His death was voluntary to show that he was in complete agreement with the Father's purpose in the work of salvation. It wasn't forced on him. Remember what he said in the garden? Not my will, but thine be done. He was in complete agreement. He knew this was the only way. It was a total act of obedient submission. It was an act of the will. First uh, Peter 1.19, But with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in the last, last times to you, and the counsels of Godhead in eternity past, and I know that's, a, and that's kind of an oxymoron, but in eternity past... The Godhead got together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they all came into agreement. Yes, this is the right plan to follow. I know that's pretty, you know, that's... But that's what it was. There was an agreement in the Godhead that the Son would be the means by which mankind would be saved. Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for just some men. That's not what it says, Mr. Calvin. It's every man. Every man. For it became him from, from whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in, in, in bringing many sons on the glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Hebrews 10.6, again he says, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, thou hast no pleasure, but a body you have prepared for me. It was a free will offering. Jesus lived his whole life in absolute obedience to the Father's will. And he fulfilled every jot and tittle of the word of God by his life. And when he was on that cross, and I, he went through the review, and did, okay, this, I did, yeah, I, of course, I'm just being silly there. But when he realized that all was fulfilled, there was nothing left to be done, that all of God's will was accomplished, he says it is finished. And he voluntarily left his body. He says here in, well, Philippians 2.6, Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I mean, even his last cry, according to Luke's gospel, is in accordance with Scripture. He says, Into thy hand I commit my spirit. That's found in Psalms 35, uh, 31 and verse 5. 31 and verse 5. Let me read you the whole verse. Into thy hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. And that's the whole verse. Now, if you... Read Psalms 31, those first four verses are verses of victory, are verses of confidence, are verses of, of faith and, and, and expressions of confidence in the Lord. It's a triumphant trust in God. And when Jesus quoted this verse, Into thy hand I commit my spirits, this was not defeat. This was victory. It was a proclamation of victory. Now, why didn't Jesus quote the whole verse? You know, sometimes we get in trouble if we don't quote the whole verse, but yet Jesus only quoted a part of the verse, that part that applied to him. Did Jesus need to be redeemed? 
No, why is, why is it that Jesus did not need to be redeemed? Thank you, Ron. Because Jesus is the Redeemer. He's the one who's doing the redeeming. Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to minister unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. That's redemption. 1 Timothy 2, 6, Who gave himself a ransom for just some of us. No, it says for all. For all. Jesus was the redeeming price of ransom from sin and death. He voluntarily paid your debt. The substitutionary atoning volitional death of Christ was not a tragedy as the world wishes to portray it, but it was a victory over death. It was victory of righteousness over sin, victory of liberty over bondage, uh, victory of grace over the law, victory of heaven over hell. That's what it was. It wasn't a tragedy. It was a victory. And that's the testimony of Scripture. It was a victory. In the last book of the New Testament, in the book of Revelations, we see the glorified Lord, and this is what he says of himself in verse 18 of chapter 1 of Revelations. He says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Now there's five keys mentioned in the Bible. And the possessor of these keys, that speaks of authority. That speaks of authority. The authority, if you've got a key to your house, that means what? You can open and, and shut that house, right? That means authority if you've got the keys. He owns those keys. Hebrews 2.14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him, that had, past tense, the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now often these keys, if you possess keys of authority, you would wear them around your neck. It was, you know, a symbol of your authority. I mean, we see it every once in a while. You know, celebrities are given the key to the city. So they used to wear them around their necks. Now, I don't know if this is how it took place. But imagine, if you will, the Lord gave up the ghost. He descends into Sheol, the place of the dead. On one side, you've got paradise. paradise. On the other side, you've got hell. Paradise is where all the Old Testament saints are. Hell is where all the lost are. So the Lord descends into Sheol, the place of the dead, much to the shock and dismay of Satan, who's standing there with these keys around his neck, Jesus walks up to Satan and says, give me those keys, they don't belong to you anymore. Now, I don't know if that's how it happened. Satan has to take the keys, put them in Jesus' hands. Satan no longer has the authority. Who now has the authority? Jesus has the authority. Yes, he did. Romans 14.9, For this in Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Now again, I don't know if that's how it went down. I just like to imagine it that way. And just like what Ron was talking about, he went down and released, he, I don't know, did he go over to the paradise's gate, stick the key in there and turn the key and open up the gate? I don't know, but Ephesians says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended to the same also that ascended up far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. He went down, and where the New Testament saints were, both Jew and Gentile, anyone who believed in the true living God, he says, come on, boys, come on, girls. You're coming with me to heaven. And he emptied paradise. 
Now think of this. Remember in Luke about the man in hell and the man, and the man Lazarus in Abraham's bosom? And he could see Abraham across that great void. Think of those folks who were left behind when paradise emptied. And the light went with them. He has the power of death and hell. No, death didn't come to Jesus. <laughs> Jesus went to death and won the victory. 1 Corinthians 15:44. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll close. Yesterday we had a memorial service for a dear friend and a dear fellow laborer. Yes, his death is tragic to the family and to the friends and to the church. But Jim is experiencing the victory. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, that victory is yours too. And we've got scriptures that testify it. And we've got a living Savior that testifies to that. Amen? Holy Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. I pray, Father in heaven, that we never become jaded to it. And I pray, Lord God, that we would never allow somebody to convince us otherwise. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so um, main service it kicks off our, our uh, vision conference. Lee Carter will be our main speaker, so I'm really looking forward to that. So if you, if you can stay, please stay and be a part of it. That's all I've got to say. And uh, thank you for coming. L- L- Lily. Leslie. See, I told you. Ish. No, I can't do that. Yes, ma'am.